On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with me, Scott Radley, sitting in, we're going to talk about the afterburn of that announcement yesterday, the financial update. More shocking than we expected, bigger numbers than we expected. What does this mean going forward? What about a second wave of COVID? Are we ready? Well, the head of the Canadian Medical Association will join us to talk about whether or not Canada is prepared for a second wave and why is it that NHL teams, that sports franchises continue to hire the same people over and over? We'll try and figure that one out as well. Stick around. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. As you heard yesterday, we talked about it yesterday leading into it. We didn't know yet when we talked about it yesterday on the show what was going to come out. But Bill Morneau, the finance minister, gave his update of what's going on in the country with our numbers. Now, keep in mind, this wasn't a budget because they say numbers are moving so fast that we can't really nail down what is a pure picture of where we are. But even with that, the numbers that came out were, to most people, to many people, more shocking than we expected. And we had expected shocking numbers. Rather than something closing in on a $300 billion deficit that is what we had anticipated, it has now apparently surpassed $340 billion. And if that $40 billion or something in that neighborhood doesn't sound like much in comparison to the whole thing, because $300 and $340 and then $40, nah. I remember that back around the time of the election, a $10 or $20 billion deficit was seen as astonishing. Was seen, I mean, that had people freaking out. And now we're at 340. Where do we go from here? Aaron Woodrick is the Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. He joins me now. Aaron, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, we knew the number was going to be big. Were you surprised when you heard that number? Yeah, I mean, I follow this pretty closely for a living, and I, even I was a bit surprised that it was that big. I was expecting somewhere around 300. Um, you know, I know for a lot of people, these are all just numbers that we don't have any reference point for, right? Uh, folks like you and I, we deal with hundreds and thousands. We don't deal with millions, billions, and trillions, which is what our debt's going to be at. So I, I like to just sort of explain how big it is. The size of the deficit this year is basically the size of the entire budget itself. Just the budget itself is almost $350 billion. So it's, it's like we have an entirely additional budget tacked on to the previous budget. Another way to look at it is I, I went back to check how long it took us to rack up that much debt before this $343 billion. It took us 28 years to do that. So we've managed to rack up as much new debt in four months as we did in the last 28 years. So suffice to say, we're spending a lot of money right now. It's a lot of money we don't have. Uh, we need to start thinking about what we're going to do next. And that really, Scott, is the thing I was most concerned about in this document, which they called a snapshot, is they told us where we, we, we were at and what we spent, but they didn't really tell us where they're going or what they're going to do next. And I think they need to really think about that because there's no way we can continue to spend at the rate we've been spending for the last few months. Well, and and that's what I was going to go with. I mean, what is this? Well, before I get to what does it mean, again, you're, you're putting it into some sort of context. I did a little math, and that's always dangerous when I start doing math. This is why I, I'm not in math. I'm in radio and newspapers because math was never my strong suit. Nonetheless, I took a shot at it. You can correct me if I get this wrong. In real terms, the amount that Canada has spent in the first four months of this year 
means that every Canadian has spent over $9,000. Family of four, $37,000 if you do it for a family of four has been spent in the past four months. Uh, it gives some sort of perspective of how much money this country has borrowed. Yeah, that's for every single Canadian, and that's just federally. Let's not forget there's provincial governments and municipal governments spending money as well. So it really does start to add up, and it's something that, look, if it was an emergency, I think everyone agrees they had to spend some money, so I'm not begrudging that. But as things begin to change, um, they haven't really adapted their policy, and that's my biggest concern. Uh, the biggest uh, expenditure is the emergency response benefit, $2,000 a month. 8 million Canadians are getting it, uh, especially in March when they launched it, Scott. We needed to do something like that. So again, understand why they did it. But they have not adapted the program to the fact we're now in July. We're trying to reopen things. So rather than trying to get people to stay home and give them money to survive, we're trying to get them back to work, but we're still paying them to stay home. So we've created a, uh, they've created a bit of a monster here that they haven't really changed with time. And, and that's not only spending billions we don't have, but it's actually actively undermining our attempt to get the economy going again. Yeah, I, I mean, I read a number of people yesterday, experts on all sides of the aisle, saying one thing they were looking for, as you pointed out, we knew they had to spend money. I, I don't think people are begrudging, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, I don't think people are begrudging that the government spent money because had it been a conservative government, they would have spent, had it been an NDP yeah. government, they would have spent, had it been green, they would have spent, it doesn't really matter. But the issue becomes people were looking for that exit strategy. And a lot of people are saying, we saw no exit strategy here. It's just more money being spent. That's exactly it. And then, you know, Minister Morneau's argument as well, things are still, uh, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. Well, that's always true. I grant there's a little bit more, but that doesn't mean they can't have some contingencies. They can't have a range of options. Uh, we just we're completely in the dark about where they're going over the next even six months. And I don't think that's acceptable. I think uh, they called this a snapshot. I hope they're working on a more substantive update to come in the fall because, as I said, the, the amount of money we're spending, you can get away with it for a few months and it's already going to be painful to climb out of it. There's no way we can continue on this pace for another half year or year. Yesterday, prior to the announcement uh, here on the show, we were talking to Ian Lee from Carleton University. And one of the things that he pointed out is, look, um, no government wants to, before an election, make announcements of big cuts and austerity measures. You just don't like to do that because nobody likes seeing things being cut. We believe because of a minority government and because of the liberal approval ratings, probably before long, we're going to see a snap election. Do you believe that Morneau is just sitting on the things that he knows he has to do to start reining this in, but wait until after an election happens? It's hard to say. I mean, this was a government that, remember, they didn't even balance the budget when times were good. So uh, am I skeptical that they have the spine to make the necessary tough choices now? Yes, I am a little skeptical. Um, the flip side of that is, yeah, are, are, do politics always affect these decisions? Of course they do. And that's unfortunate. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about whether they will call, liberals will call an election to take advantage of the, the you know, the jump in the polls. I'm not as convinced as some that they're going to do that, Scott. I think the public, uh, they may like what the government has done. It's a different thing if they see the government acting cynically to try and take advantage of the situation. They may, you know, they may revolt. We've seen this before. I point out to people, <laughs> Winston Churchill won a war and then went to the polls and, 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 and you know, he lost pretty badly. And, and it was because the public, you know, changed their mind. So I would, I would certainly caution any leader that wants to take advantage of temporary, um, you know, highs in the polls to, to call election. 
I, I don't think these are stupid people, though, and I think that they are going to look at this and say this is just so unsustainable at this point to even continue remotely like this. You, you mentioned we now have a trillion dollar deficit, a debt that we have to pay off, $340 billion in deficit. I'm looking at this saying not only do they have to cut things back, but are, do, they, do they start now to say we have to start cutting below where we were before? We have to start cutting into the programs we wanted. I'm not sure I'm there yet that I think they're going to do that. But surely they can't pretend that things, that things are able to be carrying on even remotely as they are right now. Well, that's it. It's a bit like Wiley Coyote running off the cliff, right? He keeps going in the air for a while until he looks down, and then suddenly he drops. And that's where that's what I worry we're going to be at with the government. I think one interesting thing I've found, Scott, is you know I've been doing this for a living, and a lot of people, things like deficits and debt, they're very abstract. They don't see how it impacts their day-to-day life. This pandemic has made it a lot more concrete for people because they recognize that we've borrowed a whole pile of money in order to survive through this, but intuitively everybody knows you borrow it now, you gotta, you gotta make up for it later. And so I certainly hope at least politically that helps governments when they come back to the public and say, we have to make some tough choices because we already spent the money, that people are a little more understanding about it because we've all had to live through this. So I think we have a more concrete sense of what it really means. Okay, to that point, um, one of the things that the prime minister said yesterday that I thought was a really interesting quote, um, said that we took on debt for you, so you did not have to. And I, I, my teeth grinded a little bit when he said that because the implication is, well, our debt doesn't really impact you in any way, so we're sacrificing ourselves. That's still debt that Canadians are going to have to pay through taxes or through job cuts or program cuts. It's not like it goes into a, a vacuum. For him to say we took on the debt doesn't mean that the debt is not real. Yeah, I hate to break it to the Prime Minister, but unfortunately, all the government's money and capacity, it's backed by you and me and every taxpayer in this country. We're the ones that pay for it. So uh, really what he means is he, he took on the debt on our behalf, but we are still going to be the ones that have to bear the consequences of it. So uh, I think, yeah, it's a bit of sleight of hand. Governments often like to frame things that they do as a free lunch, but the reality is at the end of the day, someone is paying for all of it, and that's you and me and everybody who pays taxes. They did say yesterday, though, one other thing, though. They said we have to continue to invest. Can we afford to continue to invest at this point? It's funny. The in word our, and they're talking about in the country, in ourselves. Yeah, it, the word invest has basically replaced the word spending for every government announcement. I've never, a government apparently has not spent any money for years. They've only invested it. I, 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 I take particular issue with the use of that term now. This is emergency money. I'm not disputing the need of having to spend it, but it's not an investment. It is a rescue emergency operation, and I don't think the government should be framing it as some sort of great opportunity you know, for us to better ourselves. We're doing this because we need to do it to survive. And I, I agree that, that you can't turn off the taps tomorrow, but if they don't start looking at ways to turn off the taps and to target the money at the people who still need it while not subsidizing, you know, behavior we don't want, like people staying home when they could go back to work. Uh, we're not only going to be broke quicker, uh, we're actually going to actively harm our recovery. And that means fewer tax revenues in the future as well. I, I, again, I want to stress that uh, like you, I don't begrudge them having spent the money. I think a lot of people are very thankful that they did something here. But when you talk about investing, if I lose my job and I have no money now coming into my family, I don't think I'm going to turn to my wife and say, you know what, we're going to get out of this by investing, by putting it in a new pool in the backyard, because it's going to raise the value of our house and we can invest in ourselves, and that'll make everything better. We, we would say, no, we're going to stop all unnecessary payments until we can figure a way out of this. 
Yeah, and that's going to be the challenge with governments. They often get uh, they, they often get stars in their eyes about all the great quote unquote investments they can make. But historically, Scott, they've got a really bad track record with it. And I worry, I think the better way to go is to look at ways to make it easier for everyone. Like one thing I've floated is if you think of small businesses that haven't had any revenue for several months, wouldn't it be easier to help them survive if you just said for the next year you don't pay any tax? I mean, it would make it that much easier for them to not go under, uh, make make life easier for, for a couple of years. And I think that is a better way to approach it. It's fairer, it treats every business equally than trying to pick a few industries or sectors and just giving them a pile of money uh last thing we're short on time i wish we had more time here um what happens i mean we we heard the financial report yesterday what happens if a second wave hits we're going to be talking about a second wave later in the show but financially we can't possibly afford to spend 340 billion dollars again this year or next year could we I don't think we can. And I think the government needs to think hard about that and think about strategies to minimize the risk for all of us that don't involve the things that we did back in March. I I think, again, talking about things you had to do then, we didn't know a lot. We had to err on the side of caution. We shut everything down. But we've learned more. We've learned things that are lower risk and higher risk. And I think we need to think of policies that allow us to try and function as best we can without shutting the the whole country down. Aaron Woodrick, the Canadian, uh, the Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Always appreciate having you on. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have heard about a threat that is hanging over us for some time now, ever since the beginning of this COVID thing started, and that is the second wave. Are we going to get a second wave? And if we do, are we now prepared for it? Have we learned our lessons having gone through what we've gone through. Well, the reason I bring this up now is because the CMA, which is the Canadian Medical Association, not the Country Music Association, though their input on this would be fascinating as well, I must say. But the Canadian Medical Association has put out a list of things that need to be addressed right now to make sure that if we do have a second wave, we're going to be able to handle it properly. Dr. Sandy Bookman is the president of the CMA. He joins me now. Doctor, thanks for doing this today. Uh, not at all. Thanks for having me. Do you? I, I know you're taking precautions and you're making these points to say, here's what we have to do to be prepared. Do you believe a second wave is inevitable? Well, you know, history will tell us that without sort of the intervention that uh, a second wave is inevitable. But given what we have learned uh, about COVID-19, uh, given what we're seeing in other areas of the world that have uh, handled the the pandemic well, uh, we think that the uh, second wave can be mitigated. In other words, it can be reduced, uh, the harms associated with it uh, reduced, and uh, that we can get our way through this uh, without the uh, serious uh, health consequences, the number of deaths and serious illness that people might have. We think we can open up the economy and our schools again and get back to uh, dealing with all the other healthcare issues we have to deal with. Uh, but we this is a precautionary message that we need to be uh, maintain our vigilance and not become complacent. Yes, because very often what I've heard, and you probably have as well, is people always point to the Spanish flu in 1918. And my thought always is, well, okay, I, I understand the historical context, but we aren't in 19, 1918 anymore. Surely by now we have the capacity and the technology and the knowledge to be able to do better than they did with their second wave. Exactly. And so uh, I think we, you know, history doesn't have to repeat itself. 
I think, by uh, the things we recommend, which are adherence to all the recommended public health measures. You know, that's the personal uh, distancing. It's the uh, it's the hand hygiene, the wearing of masks. It's getting really effective testing and tracing and then isolating uh, where we find the outbreaks. It's, you know, it's... Uh, attention to the issues associated with some of the vulnerable populations like seniors in long-term care and those experiencing homelessness. All those things uh, will allow us to mitigate this so that we hopefully don't see the surge and the kind of thing that's happening right now in the southern U.S. I uh, I must say that when I when we got the press release yesterday that you were coming out with your list today, I was kind of expecting something that was going to be very medical and very, you know, needed a PhD to be able to read it. And this is not an insult. This is a compliment. Your list of five things is, I would describe it as incredibly basic, incredibly logical. Uh, Canadians cannot let their guard down. we got to stay vigilant. Effective testing and tracing, yeah, of course. Protecting the health and safety of frontline healthcare workers, yes. Protecting marginalized and susceptible populations, yes. And uh, managing other healthcare issues. This is, th- I understand when I say this is not complicated. Doing it is complicated, but the topics are not complicated to stay on top of this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these things aren't rocket science. They're they're very basic, but they work and they are effective. The 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 more challenging question is how and are we ready as a as a society, as a culture in Canada to do this. You know, we've been under significant, severe restriction for quite some time. The initial lockdown, our gradual reopening, the weather is nice now, finally, and people have had enough. Uh, we get it. We're all feeling that. Uh, we want to reconnect with our, our family and friends, uh, get back to work, uh, start to have a more normal life. But COVID-19 isn't going away. And uh, and that's our concern. And when we see um, behavior that uh, where people have no regard for physical distancing, that are congregating in large uh, in large numbers, who people who don't want to wear masks in an indoor setting, we, we become more worried then because if we don't follow these pretty basic public health measures, um, we're going to face big consequences. Again, there's no doubt about that. We will have the lockdown again. We will see more disease. Um, so hence, uh, let's take the precautions now. Let's not let our guard down. And uh, then we can find our way uh, with opening of our schools, opening of our economy, uh, you know, and not dealing with all these other sort of unintended consequences of of COVID, like all the other healthcare problems that we have in society. So, yeah, so that's the, the, the message is basic. The how is a little bit harder to do. With the things you just said, though, would it be a fair read into between the lines of what you just said that if we do have to have a second wave, let's hope and pray that it arrives not in the summertime, but in the winter when people seem to be more willing and more inclined to stay indoors and by themselves anyway? Yeah, although we the data hasn't shown or the evidence hasn't shown that this is related to temperature, I think in Canada, of course, not the temperature, is, just the idea of the socializing. We're willing to cocoon ourselves in our igloos here if if it's cold. Well, we we, we, might, we want to be outside. Be we might be better, but we also tend to be more inside and in indoor spaces. And if we congregate in indoor spaces, mm-hmm. we might see more more COVID happening uh, in our culture because that's the way we are in Canada right now, where we can be spend more time outside. So that's was that's kind of the concern. As long as we continue to practice these measures, and we do do that, even being inside, I think may uh, may allow us to avoid a, a big wave again and overwhelm our health our healthcare system and our and have to close down our economy. 
We have learned, obviously, some things from this um, science, the, 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 what we know or think we know about masks or distancing. or I mean, that has morphed over the last number of months. But the other thing is, uh, do you believe that if a second wave was to manifest itself, that we would be, and you sort of touched on this, that we would be more willing to do the hard things very quickly. Our, our, the government did not want to close borders very fast. It said that was a bad thing. The government didn't want to stop flights from hotspots very quickly. Do you think we're more amenable to making those hard decisions a second time around? A hundred percent. And I think this has been general learning, not only by the healthcare professions, but by government and by the Canadian public uh, in general. So uh, I think that they will uh, clamp down because they know these things work now. And uh, that's part of the learning. So uh, I hope we hope we don't have to face this by by taking a cautious approach right now and remaining vigilant. But if it does come to that, I think, yes, uh, they will be much quicker to uh, to get the lockdown in place, to close the borders, to reduce air traffic, etc. There is one other thing, and it has been touched on a little bit, not really talked about a whole lot. Um, a couple about an hour ago on the show, we were talking about the financial effects of this, and you know we we heard about the deficit yesterday. But there is also obviously the medical side, and not just medical physically. There is also we're hearing now that the self quarantining, the being alone, the stress, everything else is having a psychological, a mental, and emotional impact on people. If we have to go back into where we were before, do we risk that, you know, yeah, you know, getting COVID is a terrible thing. No one's going to argue that we should make light of that. But there are also serious implications for people mentally and emotionally that we are now going to have to start looking after better. Um, that is absolutely true. And not only for the general public, I may point out that it is for frontline healthcare workers, you know, who are still taking on and off protective equipment, who are dealing with the stress of this. And we're worried about sort of the long term effects. So we're worried about the long term effects in the general public, uh, people who uh, who've been isolated, particularly those who who may be living alone. Um, this is a this is a big concern. It speaks. I think COVID has un, unveiled some of the gaps in our healthcare system. We haven't had enough uh, attention to, for example, to mental health and addictions care. And COVID is revealing again that gap as, as things get get worse. It's the same for the problems in long term care and the and the tragedy of, uh, of 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 seniors in long term care who have died as a result of these disease. Canada is the worst among all the OECD countries in terms of the proportion of uh, deaths that occurred in long-term care. So COVID is unveiling this and it has unveiled the issue of the challenges of mental health uh, and getting appropriate treatment uh, in, uh, in Canada. And the real challenge of this, and we've got to go, unfortunately, but the real challenge of this is under normal circumstances, a government or federal, provincial, whomever might be able to say, you know, we're going to start spending a lot more to deal with this. We've spent so much money that to, and everybody now says we need more money. It's going to be really hard to find the cash to be able to support all these programs. Exactly. So the government, you know, in addition to the, the deficit and debt that they announced uh, by, by Minister Morneau, um, they're also about $80 billion short of revenue because the economy is not open. So um, it's really important then to take this approach that we're recommending at the CMA so that we can build the economy again and be able to have the funds to, to be able to fund these important measures. Long-term care, uh, housing for vulnerable populations, people experiencing homelessness, for example, and mental health and addictions care. 
Dr. Sandy Bookman, the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Not at all. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Every Monday I have this guy on in the evening to talk a little bit of sports. Well, it's not Monday and it's not the evening, but we thought, you know, let's do it anyway. Let's bring him on. Don Robertson uh, of the Dundas Real McCoys, owner and operator of ComChoice Realty and the possessor of the Gold Stick Award as the greatest hockey administrator in the history of all time and creation or something like that. I, I believe that was the criteria, right? I think that was what I said. <laughs> yes, well, t- truly, uh, truly, the winner of this year's Ontario Hockey Association Gold Stick for um, contributions to the game. So, congratulations on that. Thank you, Scott. It was uh, it's quite an award when you see some of the people that have wanted it. Starts to become quite humbling. Uh, well, I don't know. Is it humbling when you are now in a category with Harold Ballard? I mean, there's some similarities there, but I don't know. Is that humbling? I said it can be. <laughs> and, and yeah. What do you mean? About, what do you mean about some similarities? <laughs> well, I don't know how much time we have here. Um, yeah. You know, you the one thing you're missing is a Yolanda. <laughs> I'm gonna leave that alone. Yes, and, a, and we and talk, TC we talked Buck. about that. She just recently passed away. She did, and I don't think you've ever owned a football team either. So there's some differences as well. We won't we won't completely lump you in. Um, anyway, hey, do you know what would have happened two weeks tomorrow? I mean, I know I, did, I haven't given you any warning for this one, but do you know what was would have started two weeks to get, uh, from tomorrow? The Olympics. The Olympics, yes, in Tokyo, they would have. Now we know they've been canceled and everything. Did that, at any point since they announced that the Olympics were cancelled or postponed, did it cross your mind that you were missing it? It never crosses my mind that I miss the Olympics, but I watch the Olympics every time they're held. And I always watch sports that I have absolutely no interest in ever going anywhere to watch. And I, 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 it's embarrassing because I will watch some things that, you know, that the local universities have on and some of those, like track and field sports. Everybody watches the men's 100 meters and the women's 100 meters. And, but nobody ever, never seems to dawn on anybody in North America that these would be good sports to go and support at the high school level or the university level. But everybody seems to love them. Um, gymnastics, um, you know, the weightlifting, I mean, I have no urge to go watch weightlifting, but if it's an Olympic event and it's on, and I've got the time, I'm probably going to watch it. So, do I miss it? Uh, probably. If you hadn't brought it up, and I had not had not a guest right, I would have said, "Geez, I wonder when the Summer Olympics are going to be on." And so, no. I, do I miss it? I'd watch it. I wasn't pining for it. Uh, I also love the fact that in the Olympics, people, as you say, who have never watched a sport suddenly become massive experts so that you can sit with your friends at work over a coffee and describe in detail your in-depth thoughts about the modern pentathlon, for example, um, and, and which of the categories, whether it's shooting or riding, that you find more challenging. Um, so, you know, but no, go ahead. Better yet, sometimes when the Olympics are on, not only do people want to talk about events they're not familiar with, it's always interesting when they start critiquing the officials. Because not only do they not know much about the event, now they think they can judge it. And the judging is always, 
I, I like the events that are time trials, like there's first, second, third, and it's all based on time. The ones that are based on judge, like the diving and so on, and, you know, you'll talk to somebody say, you know, the Canadian guy had a perfect dive. You want to go, what the hell do you know about diving? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, if he didn't belly flop, after that, I'm really out of my element. I can tell if it's a bad dive, if his innards are now floating on the top of the pool because he went off the high board and his stomach exploded i'm generally pretty confident to say that was a poor dive and someone should probably rescue that poor man anything well, beyond to. that though i'm i'm out of my depth they gotta go in and get him because he didn't come up going all right so that couldn't have ended well yeah anyway. no it's uh but you're right i think that i would bet you that 99 percent of people and and don i'm speaking as someone who i have immense respect for olympic athletes i think they're wonderful they don't get enough attention they they don't get enough money all that stuff but i bet you 98 percent of people if you if we had gone through next week and then the week after and not said anything would never have thought oh you know what we're missing the olympics right now I think I'm with you. I think a lot of people, they turn on their TV and they go, oh, Olympics. Okay, I'll watch. Well, it's, and it's, uh, still having no clue why I'm on, but uh, if we're going to talk about the Olympics, it'll be interesting the team that goes next year versus the team that would have went this year. And if there's, if there's any differences, are they going to have different qualifications? And does the guy that was second all of a sudden, is he the best and should be going or, Somebody that was left off the team now makes a team because another guy's just was hanging on. He was at the end of it, and you know, I, don't, I don't know how they're gonna. I don't know how the different countries are gonna hold their qualifications because they've all had Olympic qualifi- qualifiers. Yep. Yep. No, you're absolutely right, and it's uh, it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be complicated because there are people who will be better next year than the people who beat them this year, and yet they may not be going and representing the country and. On and on and on. Well, let me tell you, since you expressed your confusion about why you're on, I'll tell you why you're on, why I brought you on here. Lindy Ruff, who is a longtime NHL head coach, coached the Buffalo Sabres for a while, and I can't remember who else he coached. Um, Dallas Stars, thank you. Uh, The New Jersey Devils are looking for a new coach right now, and apparently Lindy Ruff is the guy they're going to be hiring. And as I was hearing his name pop up again, I couldn't help but think, why is it that NHL teams, more often than not, not every time, but more often than not, when they have a coach opening, it's the same names of the same guys that are on the recycle heap who have coached one or two or three places that always are in the mix to come back in and so often end up with the jobs again, rather than young guys who are cutting their teeth and learning their craft in the minors or somewhere else. Why is that? I don't have a real good explanation because, generally speaking, when you're bringing in a veteran guy like Lindy Ruff or, <clears throat> you know, uh, uh, God bless Ken Hatford, Hitchcock or Matt yeah. Quinn, those guys that were, like, you're generally bringing in a guy that has been fired because somebody, multiple times, uh, Mike Keenan, because they don't know how to coach anymore. And then as they sit there on the couch, gain tremendous wisdom and now can lead your team to the Stanley Cup. It's always it's always a wonderment that that happens, but the National Hockey League, and we're talking about Lindy Ruff, we'll talk about the National Hockey League, or I will, they started to bring in some young guys, you know, that maybe were in the OHL, maybe briefly in the American League. But, boy, I'll tell you, if that experiment doesn't go well for the general manager, you know, the, the leash they have is far shorter than, than Lindy Ruff will get because 
we're trying something new and this better work. And the owner is going to say, but Lindy Ruff's available. Yeah, but these two guys in the American League are really good young guys. They can relate. All right, but he's got 15 minutes to prove he can do this. So it's, it's kind of unfair from that platform as well. But here's, I think, the biggest challenge. I had an opportunity to golf yesterday with a couple of veteran guys that, that won Allen Cups with me in Brantford, actually. And uh, Patty Graham played in the NHL and uh, Peter Natashak. And this, this subject came up, although we weren't aware that Lindy Ruffa got uh, rehired. But one of the challenges that, that we talked about, sitting, we're sitting around after having a cup of tea and thinking, you know, how do these guys today relate to Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews? How does a guy in his 50s understand and how, how does he motivate a millennial? And a guy that's probably making eight times more than they are. So the coaches maybe got a good gig. He's making $2 million a year, although he'd do it for 550 just to get back in the game. And he's got to go in and relate and tell guys in their early 20s about life and how to motivate them. Like the days of uh, Iron Mike Keenan walking in and, or Punch Imlock and kick, kicking a garbage can through the uprights to motivate these guys is gone. They make too much money. And I don't yeah, the know coaches, the coaches are disposable now. I know, but it, what, what a challenge that Lindy Ruff has ahead of him. So the conclusion I would come to, if I'm Lindy Ruff, which I'm not, and he hasn't called me because probably because he didn't know me, but if I'm Lindy Ruff, I grab a couple of those young coaches that really get the systems, really understand the guys, guys that are maybe recently played, in the National Hockey League that are maybe in their 30s, careers don't last as long, guys that can relate to their lifestyle now and what might motivate them. So if Ruff, you know, surrounds himself with those people, and even Ken Hitchcock, guys like that, if they do, maybe they can be successful. But if they want to bring in the same systems they had 15 years ago and treat the players the same way, boy, I'll tell you, it's a recipe for failure. But they still get those opportunities. And the young guys seem to, if you're going to be a young coach who's going to be given a chance to do this, you seem to have to, there, there seems to be a, a sort of a, a checklist of things that you have to do. You have to be able to talk to the media in a way that makes you sound like you've got some PhD in psychoanalysis, even though you don't. And you have to be talking about some brand new system that you formulated that really isn't a brand new system, but you have to be able to convince people that you really come up with something spectacular. You can't just be a guy that says, you know what, I've coached in the minors for a few years and my teams have always won. So what more do you want? That, that doesn't seem to fly. It has to be something very fancy with all these guys. Well, yeah, and I think one of the, yes, you're right. And one of the, one of the challenges again is can, can, the, can the older guys relate to them? And one of the teams that, that, that jumped out of the box a little bit is Sheldon Keith in Toronto. You know, Kyle Dubas is a young GM, um, and Sheldon Keith, by all accounts, is relatively young to coach in the National Hockey League, um, and he's got some young guys with him. So the biggest difference I saw between the Toronto Maple Leafs with Sheldon Keith, Keith coaching them and Mike Babcock is the player-coach relationship. I think I think Sheldon Keith can relate to them much better than uh, than uh, Mike Babcock can, but at the end of the day, I don't know if the results were a whole lot different. I mean, we'll see once the playoffs start. That would have been a great challenge and a great barometer to judge them on. 
But, you know, I mean, the, they started out like a house on fire when Sheldon Keith came in. But when they, once they settled back down and all got into a routine, boy, there wasn't, it was marginally different. I like Sheldon Keith. I think, I think it was a good decision. But I don't know. It's not like bringing a young guy in, you know, had them go 54-0. and 0. But I go back to my question, and that is that we we seem to have this recurring theme where there are a handful of coaches who keep cycling through, and eventually between the 10 of them, they'll have coached every team in the NHL twice. And if that's the case, and if you've got these guys, and again, it's, it's Tortorella, and it's Lindy Ruff, and it's... Um, uh, you know, Babcock may be in there. I don't know if he'll get another job. And, and a, you know, a bunch of others. And I'm, some of them I'm forgetting right now. But, Boudreaux. but yeah, Boudreaux. there's another great one. Boudreaux. Why do you why do you have a minor league system? Why do you why do you hire a coach to go down and work with you, especially a younger coach? Why do you choose someone to run your minor league team? Your players in the minors are being groomed to make it to the NHL. Why would you not use that to? find your new coach or not even from your own team, Don, there's nothing coaches are allowed often to be plucked. I mean, when, when Claude Julian was coaching here in Hamilton for the Bulldogs, he was an Edmonton Oilers coach. It was their farm team and he was hired by the Oilers. But when the Canadians needed a coach, they went into the Oilers system and signed him and and got him, got permission. I, I just don't understand what the purpose of the minors is for coaching. If you're rarely going or don't like to use it. Well, here, here's one of the concerns, and and in the National Hockey League, I think we've talked about this before. If you're if you don't have a great team, then you coach not to lose, because the fewer games you lose, the longer you last. And if you can last long enough, and you you can rebuild and add three or four of the right parts through a draft, you can be successful. So most guys are just happy to tread water and not lose. General managers have a tendency to last a lot longer as long as they're competitive. So if you're the general manager of the New Jersey Devils and you've got a chance to bring a young guy in and maybe reshape how coaching in the National Hockey League goes, or you can bring in Lindy Ruff, who can assuredly, with his experience, keep you in the middle of the pack, maybe everybody keeps their job longer. And I think that has a big bearing on it. I think it's sad, but general managers go where there's a bigger comfort zone than stepping outside that box. So low risk, low risk to save your own butt. You know what? Talking on the radio, I can agree with it. If I'm the general manager, I'm going, wow, you know, it seemed like a really good idea uh, sitting on a dock in the summertime thinking, I know this young guy. I know he can coach in the NHL. Then you get a chance as a general manager going, you know what? I'm going to go with Lindy Ruff. I don't want to lose my job. And I I suppose if... And Don, I suppose if the coach is a big enough name and a big enough personality, they also, in addition to that, in addition to being a known quantity, they're all, and and so you're not looking like you're taking a wild chance. They're also a bit of a shield and a bit of a buffer for you if you're the GM. Well, I also think that nowadays, well, in the old days too, but generally speaking, the owners have to sign off on it. And if you, if you walk in with this young 32 year old coach that's, seems to be dynamite in every aspect of the game, and you present Lindy Ruff, and the owner gets a say, and he says, well, I prefer you go with Ruff, do whatever you want. (laughs) Pretty sure I know what I'd be doing, unless I had a 10-year contract. Right? So the general managers are concerned. So everybody takes the easy path, the path less traveled. 
and that's why I think you get recycled coaches more often than not. And it makes well, it harder. But you see, we saw in Calgary this year, the, the coach whose name is Gatesby left, not because he was a poor coach, and the guy that was Claude Julian's assistant that was in Hamilton with the Bulldogs. Jeff Ward. From Guelph, yeah, Jeff Ward. He stepped in. Looks like he may keep the gig. Now, Jeff is not a young guy, but he's certainly not. Uh, he's no Lindy Ruff. He hasn't had several head coaching jobs. But, you know, Wardle might be able to step in there and do a pretty good job for them and keep the job. He's certainly not a gray beard, gray beard for any, by any stretch of the imagination. But that's generally about as close as you get unless you get a Kyle Dubas that's prepared to hire a guy that, by the way, he had coach in the OHL for him in the Sioux, and he had him win a color cup for him with the Marlies. You know, it was a pretty easy transition and a comfort level for Dubas. But if he had to step outside that box much further, he may have looked at Lindy Ruff, too. And he had him with the uh, Pembroke Lumber Kings. They did. They, they were together forever. Yeah, they've been. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Don Robertson, owner, and uh, his arms are probably tired now from lugging around the gold stick that he carries everywhere he goes now. Um, walks around and says, I'm humbled to hold this gold stick, so nobody pay attention to me, but I've got the gold stick or something I, uh, like that. I golf, well, I golf with it now. <laughs> it's the it's like the putter in Happy Gilmore. Yes, I actually I have no idea if there is such a thing. It was all done virtually. I don't I don't know if they give you a gold stick if it's a cup a trophy. I was I, I don't know how they hand out a gold stick, but it'll be fun to see when it happens. Oh well, and I certainly hope for your benefit or your c- case uh, that it's twenty four car- carat at least. I mean, I hope it's not like this just spray on gold coloring. You want a real gold stick. And you can tell them 20, that. Is 24 as high as it goes? I don't know. No, there's higher than that. You know, next year you can shoot for the platinum stick, and then, then you know, come up with that one. But, um, hey, uh, Don Robertson, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. Thank you very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.